Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the managing editor of Providence. And today we are speaking with Paul Miller. Miller is a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He is also a contributing editor of Providence, a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and he is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. So, Paul, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. And today we're going to be talking about Afghanistan and kind of the current situation and kind of what will be going on um, or what we think will be happening in the future and what the situation is there. And regular listeners will know we talked with Rebecca Heinrichs uh, earlier this past month. And so we talked about like the withdrawal in that episode. And so be sure to go back and look up that article or that podcast. And we also have several articles that have been talking about Afghanistan. And in the show notes, we'll have links to some of those articles, including some that Paul has written. And so, Paul, to kind of start us off, can you give a rehash of what's been going on in Afghanistan? Well, since the Taliban took over a month uh, ago, um, you know, my understanding is that there's effectively no real resistance to them remaining. There had been an effort by the Panjiri Tajiks in the north to hold out and to sustain their autonomy and relaunch a resistance movement. I, I haven't seen much uh, happen uh, on that front. Um, I still hold out hope that they might be able to, to do something, but uh, we haven't seen much yet. Of course, the human rights situation in Afghanistan is dire. The Taliban um, are, are not Taliban 2.0. They're not moderate. They haven't changed. Uh, the tiger doesn't change his stripes. And so uh, women are again imprisoned in their homes. Uh, the Taliban, uh, there are anecdotal reports of them going door to door to hunt down uh, people who worked in the pre previous regime, people who cooperated with the coalition, human rights advocates, religious minorities. They're hunting them down in some cases, summarily executing them. Um, so uh, Afghanistan is, uh, again, in dire straits. Uh, it's not a pretty picture, but it is exactly what you would expect after the United States precipitous withdrawal from the country. So you kind of mentioned the uh, you know, fact that the Taliban is hunting down these people. So could you elaborate on like what is the situation for, I know a lot of Providence listeners are interested in the religious minorities, including Christians and others as well as the situation for women and other marginalized groups in Afghanistan. So when the Taliban took power, they, um, th see, they know how to spin the international media. And they said all the kinds of things that we want to hear. They said that they would not engage in reprisal killings. They said they were going to offer a general amnesty to former uh, employees of the former regime and to soldiers in the previous Afghan army. But they also said these things in 1996 when they first took over Kabul in, in Afghanistan's civil war back then. And they didn't hold their word back then, and they're not holding to it now. So the Taliban um, are interested only in an uh, autocratic form of government, nearly totalitarian, um, a theocratic form of government that is reserved for not just Muslims, but jihadists, for uh, those who believe in their brand of fairly extreme Islam, or jihadism, as I prefer to call it. Um, and that means that they uh, are cracking down on all of their opponents, both political opponents and religious opponents, and anybody who just doesn't fit into their mold. In the 90s, they were known for a near genocidal level of violence against the Shia of Afghanistan. Afghanistan is 90 plus percent Sunni. Uh, there is a Shia Hazara minority, and the Taliban were brutal towards them. There actually used to be a small Jewish community in Afghanistan. There isn't anymore, uh, thanks in part to the Taliban. There had been a small but growing population of Afghan Christians over the past 20 years, and now uh, many of them have fled, 
and others are now in hiding and again, targeted by the Taliban who understand the growth of Christianity to be a, a direct threat to what the Taliban represents. And for these people who are fleeing, are they trying to get into different countries or are they having to uh, stay in the country? Like are the neighboring countries allowing refugees in? Uh, that's unclear to me. Um, there's always been a very large refugee population in Pakistan and Iran. There was a, you know, we, we saw the large population gathered around the airport trying to escape to other countries through, through a, you know, an air corridor, not, not by land. I know that there was, you know, Qatar and other countries welcomed refugees in the immediate weeks after the fall of Kabul. Uh, again, unclear to me if that's continuing. I, I hope it is. I hope the Taliban actually live up to what they said they would do and allow people to leave. But uh, some reports suggest that the Taliban have deliberately stopped further flights from a northern city, Mazari Sharif, where additional U.S. citizens and uh, Afghan um, special immigrant visa applicants were on airplanes trying to take off and were unable to. Uh, and that was the case for days, even weeks. Um, so the Taliban have, have not been helpful in that regard uh, since they were since they took over the country. And while we're on the topic about refugees, how is, you know, I know the United States let in, you know, a lot of refugees. We had pictures of flights coming in to Dulles Airport. So what's the situation like for the refugees in America who arrived? Like how many are there, do you know, or what's going on with them? We, we don't know. We don't know. I have a very clear picture on how many refugees have made it into the United States. Uh, the Biden administration claims that the airlift got 120,000 people out of Afghanistan over two weeks. That number seems to count um, U.S. citizens as well as foreign diplomats. So it's, it's thousands of European diplomats and uh, citizens, NGO um, staff. And we don't really know how many Afghans it got out. Uh, it could be, uh, one number said, as little as 8,000 or so. I, I think it's probably more than that. But, but again, we just don't know. Uh, once refugees make it to the United States, there's a long, complicated bureaucratic uh, process where they are first handled by the State Department and Homeland Security and then handed off to the social services. Um, and it's largely a volunteer effort uh, led by, uh, by, by nonprofit, by charities. Uh, Catholic charities, Lutheran charities handle a lot of the refugee resettlement once refugees have made it through the bureaucratic process with the U.S. government. And so these Afghan refugees, however many there are, they are being resettled in communities across the country. I know the in Northern Virginia has quite a lot of them, and I would expect uh, that they may be resettled near the other Afghan expatriate communities, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles. I, I would just encourage listeners, if you're interested in helping, go look up uh, both Catholic and Lutheran uh, immigrant refugee resettlement agencies. Consider donating uh, money or goods uh, because uh, the need is quite large and uh, the refugees come here essentially with nothing. These are people who have fled their homes, sometimes with very little warning, maybe carrying a few, few suitcases. But because they had to leave everything behind, they don't have a job, they don't have money, uh, and they'll need to start a new life. And so this is an opportunity for us to be hospitable as both Americans and as Christians. And earlier you mentioned the kind of the civil war, the resistance to the Taliban has kind of dissipated on that much is, um, doesn't seem like a lot is happening on that front. So would you say that the possibility of a civil war in Afghanistan is relatively low now, or is it heavily dependent upon some outside backer to help those resistance fighters? Uh, I would like to see the United States and international partners 
um, help the Panjiri Tajiks reorganize some kind of anti-Taliban resistance. Um, let's be realistic. Nobody's going to take the country back over again. There's not going to be a nationwide insurgency against the Taliban. But here's what could happen. We could create an island of autonomy within Afghanistan, probably centered in the north. They could be a magnet for remaining refugees uh, who could find some degree of safe haven from the Taliban there. And then perhaps then we could continue to evacuate um, our Afghan allies and other vulnerable Afghans from an island of autonomy within Afghanistan. Um, perhaps more importantly, the uh, uh, resistance to the Taliban could also become our eyes and ears watching the reconstitution of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State in Afghanistan. Um, as we withdrew our military forces, we withdrew most of our intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets. We, we lost our eyes and ears. We don't know really what's happening in the country anymore. Uh, we can only watch from afar uh, through news outlets, and again, most journalists have left, um, or through drones or, or something like that. We just don't know as in great detail what's happening in Afghanistan. And that includes what Al-Qaeda is doing in Afghanistan. And I'm deeply worried about our, our ignorance of what's happening. So partnering with local Afghan allies who are anti-Taliban could be a great way for us to reconstitute um, an intelligence network that keeps an eye on Al-Qaeda for us and lets us know where they are, what they're up to, and what they're planning. And since the Taliban takeover, the Afghan economy has been collapsing. There's, you know, you know videos of people on runs at the bank, people lining up to get their cash out. People are going unpaid, according to reports. And so on this situation of the economy, how do you think the world should respond? Because if we you know, support them economically, that's supporting the Taliban. And so I guess two questions there. You know, one, how should the world respond? And two, uh, even if we should respond differently, how do you think the, ta or the uh, Biden administration would respond? So the, the, the Afghan economy is crashing because the Taliban are um, incompetent, corrupt, and tyrannical. Uh, they just don't know how to manage or run a state. Um, and that's the fundamental problem with the Afghan economy. Um, they're also uh, oppressive. They actually purposely shut down areas of economic activity that they deem to be un-Islamic. Um, and, the, and the Afghan people know this, and they're, they're sort of proactively responding to what they expect the Taliban will do. So they're, again, the women are staying home. That's going to shut down a huge part of your workforce. Uh, a lot of um, Afghans involved in arts, commerce, education, their, their entire industries have just disappeared because the Taliban won't allow it um, uh, or will only allow a heavily censored version of it. Uh, I, I, I recall an anecdote about the Taliban going into the central bank asking about uh, the foreign reserves. And they actually expected there to be piles and piles of gold lying around that they could use to, to buy stuff. And of course, that's not how modern central banking works. Um, we help the Afghans build a real, pretty effective, pretty pretty competent central bank for the past 20 years. And uh, they're not going to keep, you know, stacks and stacks of gold. And uh, so the Taliban just, they don't, uh, they, they're unaware of how modern economies operate. Um, so when you have them in charge of the state, things, things won't go well. In addition, the donors, of course, are going to hold back a lot of the aid that we had promised Afghanistan because we wanted to prop up a legitimate democratic uh, government in Afghanistan that was a partner with us against terrorism. Uh, we don't have that anymore. And so there's a different incentive structure in place. For all those reasons, Afghanistan is an you know, economic uh, downward spiral. Could we do anything about it? Well, like with North Korea, we do give some limited humanitarian assistance. I think in North Korea, we give we just give food aid. 
perhaps we could consider doing the same thing. Um, there's still a risk that if we give food, it will allow the Taliban to take those shipments of food and take credit for them, or they'll take the shipments of food and then dole it out only to their supporters. Um, they'll limit the food distribution to political opponents. So there's always a risk whenever you give anything in a situation like this. But perhaps we could um, just alleviate some human suffering, try to give a minimal amount of uh, humanitarian assistance. Beyond that, I, I think we probably shouldn't. I think we probably should isolate the Taliban as much as possible. And uh, is there any, do you know of any reports of like how China or Russia is going to respond to this economically? Or is that, we just don't know right now. You know, there's a few reports out there that China may try to um, incorporate Afghanistan into its Belt and Road Initiative uh, and develop its mineral assets. They've had a long project running with a copper mine in Afghanistan. That Look, that's fine. I don't really understand that to be a threat. If they're able to do that, you know, more power to them. Uh, I, I don't get too worked up about the possibility of China's economic activity in Afghanistan. There is other things to worry about. Uh, I, I don't particularly like China's growing economic clout, but this is a pretty tertiary uh, theater in which they in which they operate. So it's not the biggest problem. So you mentioned kind of the uh, we need eyes and ears on the ground in Afghanistan to kind of keep an eye on Al Qaeda. And so what do you think the future of U.S. counterterrorism operations are going to be in the country, in the region? We, I know with Heinrichs, we talked about like over the horizon strikes. And we also had the, since that podcast, we had confirmation that the airstrike against the um, target in Kabul actually killed an aid worker, that it wasn't an ISIS-K member. So it seems that over the horizon strikes might be a little problematic if we don't have eyes and ears close to the target. And so what overall, like, what do you think the situation is going to be for U.S. counterterrorism there? Very bad. Um, President Biden claims that we have an over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability. I don't really believe him. I think, you know, people have been influenced by Hollywood to believe that we are able to deploy uh, troops or, or missiles or drones from halfway around the world sort of magically at the touch of a button and that we know exactly where to send them because of a kind of an all-seeing eye in the sky. And none of that is true. Um, you, we still need physical proximity to the bad guys that we want to kill or the people we want to spy on. And we don't have that anymore because we've left Afghanistan. We don't have that proximity. And so sending troops or drones or anything to kill bad guys is much, much harder. Afghanistan is landlocked. We're going to have to fly over Iran or over Pakistan or over the Central Asian republics, which is all extremely problematic. And then once we get there, we don't really have as good intelligence about who's who. You just mentioned the airstrike that killed an aid worker. I, I think I read it killed a bunch of children as well. When you lack the physical proximity to the target, when you lack good intelligence, you're not entirely sure who you're killing. Um, so this over-the-horizon counterterrorism capability is hard, expensive, blind, clumsy, inaccurate, and unreliable. Compared to the presence we had in Afghanistan just a month ago, which is much more well-informed and, and even surgical in its counterterrorism capability. So the CT situation in Afghanistan is very bad right now. And I know the, I can't remember who said it, but um, there was an intelligence official who said that they are expecting that Al-Qaeda will be able to rebuild operations and threaten the U.S. I think within like 12 to 24 months. They said that they think the assets in Syria and other places for Al-Qaeda are more of a threat. But like, what do you think, what do you expect from Al-Qaeda in the country? Um, I think Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State 
um, both just had a catastrophic victory that was so unexpectedly successful, they're not even quite sure what to do with it. Um, I, th I, th I think I agree that uh, they're not going to launch a 9-11 tomorrow. It's going to take them a little bit of time to digest the magnitude of their victory and be, and, and be capable of doing something with it. Um, I think their safe haven in Afghanistan will not be as overt as it was pre-9-11 because they don't want to attract our drones or our special forces. I think our homeland security is better. So when Al-Qaeda, uh, when the Afghan chapter of Al-Qaeda um, is ready to kind of resume operations, it might actually target uh, allies. It might target overseas military bases. It might target something else. Targeting the U.S. homeland is, is much harder than it used to be, and that's a good thing. Um, nonetheless, they are a, a danger and a threat that we need to take seriously. You, you distinguish between Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda in elsewhere like Syria. Look, it's all um, a related movement. It is a movement of jihadist terrorism. And that movement is stronger today than it was 20 years ago. It has chapters almost all around the world. It's, there, there's more jihadist fighters. The ideology is more popular. And they've just won a smashing victory that jihadist groups around the world publicly celebrated. Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and, and Lashkar-e Taiba and Hezbi Islami and the Pakistani Taliban and on and on and on publicly celebrated our defeat in Afghanistan, our withdrawal from Afghanistan. They claimed it as a victory for jihad. And when you believe you're on the winning side, it gives you momentum. It gives you energy. It gives you vision. It gives you recruiting. It gives you fundraising. It gives you ambition. So for all those reasons, I think that political violence from the jihadist movements um, is not going away and will probably resurge in the very near future. It, it, it may be that we're not even halfway through the, the war on terror yet. A lot of people, when they you know, look for a silver lining in the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, they point to the fact that this is part of a pivot from Central Asia to the East Pacific to counter China. And uh, there's also this idea that um, because Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, it is going to basically be a huge headache for Russia and China so that this is a great power competition win. And this is something that, again, Heinrichs and I talked on. I wrote an article, which I'll link to that will go into more detail. But I, I'm a little skeptical that China and Russia will... Uh, um, that they'll fumble the crisis. It's not a guarantee that they won't screw up, but I think that there might be opportunities for them there. Maybe small ones, not huge, drastic ones, but some small ones there for them. And uh, I think that you know Iran and Pakistan might have more problems, but, um, but I know you wanted to say something about the culture of world order. So how does the situation in Afghanistan affect that culture of world order? Um, I don't believe that China and Russia are going to get bogged down in Afghanistan like a, some kind of quagmire. The, the, the whole myth of Afghanistan as a graveyard of empires is just an unhelpful way of thinking about the region. I, I could go on and on about that. I think we need to recognize that we have been for 20 years in an era of democratic backsliding and the slow erosion of the foundations of the free world. There's fewer democracies now today than there were 20 years ago. Um, the quality of democracy in the developed world is less than it was 20 years ago. Uh, the culture of world order is less safe, less free, less prosperous than it was 20 or 30 years ago. 
So when something happens like the fall of Afghanistan, it's not the most important thing that's happened in the world in the 21st century, um, but it is one more data point on this trend line of the decline of the free world order. Uh, it's another straw on the camel's back. And once the camel is uh, dead on the ground, we know that every straw played its part. And so it's very troubling to me that the president could be so cavalier about throwing another straw on the camel's back. Uh, we shouldn't be cavalier with world order. We shouldn't be cavalier with an event like this that was an international public humiliation for the United States, that was an unnecessary blow against uh, freedom, safety, and prosperity across the world. Uh, I think the president was cavalier. He was flippant about it. And now the world is let, is worse off than it was. Um, I've been talking about the erosion of the free world. What I'm concerned about is that when our vision of the world suffers a setback like the fall of Afghanistan, when our vision of the world is humiliated on the international stage the way it was, it opens up a window of opportunity for others like China and Russia to advance their vision of the world. That's how this plays a role in great power competition. Um, we've lost a tempo. We've lost a step in, in, the, in sort of the competition for prestige and influence around the world. And it allows China and Russia and others to pick up a step uh, and advance their vision of world order. And look, the free world has its problems. But, but I promise you, no matter what you don't like about the free world, the Chinese-led world order is going to be a whole lot worse. Um, and I'm, I'm worried that we're actively building Chinese-led world order right now. You mentioned, like you can go on, about how Afghanistan isn't the graveyard of empires. And uh, I know that's a topic. It seems so ingrained into the American psyche that it is the graveyard. And kind of reading about the history, it, I heard someone say it's almost like a highway of empires. It's not a graveyard of empires. And so kind of like a final question that uh, may be a little off of the uh, you know, transition of what we've been talking about here, but why isn't Afghanistan the graveyard of empires? Um, why isn't it? Well, let's see. Um, the people who say it is the graveyard of empires like to claim the Anglo-Afghan wars uh, in support of that myth. Um, but Great Britain won the first Anglo-Afghan war, and it won the second Anglo-Afghan war which hardly makes it a graveyard of empires. I, you know, and, the, and the specific stories you often hear about those wars are um, exaggerated to the point of caricature. They're not true. It's not true that the British had to evacuate from Kabul in 1841 and that only one survivor made it back to Jalalabad. This is not true. You know, go read a good quality history book and you'll learn that thousands made it out and, you know, and the British came right back and they burned down the Bat Bazaar in Kabul. That's just a small example of how these myths pile upon each other to create an image that is has no bearing with reality. Afghanistan has often been incorporated into neighboring empires, the Persian Empire, the Mughal Empire, uh, and and that's just normal. It's normal for Afghanistan to be part of larger political and economic units. Um, it was true for much of its history, and so today it was possible for the international community to build something in Afghanistan, centered in Kabul that was in, integrated into the region and even into the world economy that was reasonably stable, that was reasonably freer than it had been and was on an upward trajectory economically. That was not unrealistic. It was not inevitable for us to fail. Uh, it was a choice that our government made 
Over many years, it was our choice to not invest what we needed to invest to make this a success. And so we we chose defeat, and we should need to acknowledge that, frankly. Well, I'm trying to find a positive way to end the podcast, but given the topic, it's kind <laughs> of not not possible. But I guess we can uh, point to, you know, you know, we need there's an opportunity for right now the church, um, like you mentioned earlier, to really help the refugees who are coming in. I know the church um, that I attended in Northern Virginia for a while used to do stuff for both immigrants and refugees. And so um, I would recommend for Christians to go out there and find out like how to help these people. Um, and that could be a good mission opportunity. Um, but Paul, uh, thank you again for joining us on the Broadcast and uh, talking, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.